We uh, have been centering on our mission and our core values uh, these last few weeks. And just a reminder, you have the mission here every week, and our core values are listed here. Remember what our mission is to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. That's our mission. That's our target. That's what we're trying to accomplish. That's why we exist. There's no other reason to exist than to accomplish God's will. It's his purpose for his church. And we have core values. Core values are principles that guide us on mission, that help keep us on track. And we have already covered uh, the first one, God's word. We've covered prayer. We've covered full devotion to Christ and lost people. And today we're going to talk about cultural relevance and generosity. In case you didn't know, the world is rapidly changing. Did you know that? We live in a day of information explosion. Science, medicine, and technology have changed the way we lived. Now, some of you don't know that, because since you have Gen Z, they were uh, born um, around 2000, 1999 or 2000 to 2001. And they've had so many things that have just been a part of their world. And people like me, uh, the world has changed drastically. And so um, it's important that the church stay informed, be educated, and be focused, and be able to navigate major cultural changes or shifts for the sake of the gospel. How do we do that? And I don't have a simple answer. It's not easy. Consider me the average guy, okay? Um, I was born sometime in the 20th century. I was raised in Iowa, Indianola, Iowa, in fact, just south of Des Moines. My dad had just come home after serving in World War II, just like thousands and thousands of guys did in those days. And he bought his first house, started having kids, and uh, we were called the baby boom. We were the biggest generation to go through um, the population in history until the millennials, and they've, out, they've outgunned us. Um, so... I grew up in this uh, simple little world in the 1950s, and um, we, you know, we had a simple little house. We had one car. We had a non-paved driveway. We didn't have a garage yet. Later, my dad, when he was prospering, would build a simple little wooden garage, one car garage. And we had one bathroom, and in the bathroom was our laundry. The washing machine, washing machine was there. I think I have a picture of it. Yes. So this is not the actual washing machine, but this is the first washing machine I remember in our house. It's probably from the 1920s or the 1930s, but they lasted a long time. And so this is what I remember. So, you know, think about our, our little uh, bathroom. We had one in the house, of course. And uh, it was a laundry room, and it was kind of a community bathroom. And that meant that anybody could come in at any time for anything. And they did. And that's just how life was. And um, 
So my dad was, began to, as he worked and he started to move up the ladder just slowly, we, we bought a new washing machine, and that's circa 1952 or 1953. We had a brand new washing machine, and life was good. Uh, I remember the first family car. It was a 1936 Ford. It wasn't that fancy. We didn't have white wall tires back in those days. It was probably the color of the fender. It was just kind of a gray. The whole car was kind of a drab gray. And I remember, I remember standing in the front seat of that car. And our family began to prosper a little bit. And my dad went out and purchased a 1948 Ford. It looked just like this. It didn't have white wall tires. It was a different color. And it was a deluxe, just like that one. Um, in our house, we had a phone, one phone, and it looked something like this. That says, wait for a dial tone. There was no dial tone back in those days. This is how you develop social skills. You got on the phone, and you had to tell, the operator would come on and say, operator, and then you were to tell them the number. Our number was 205J. So that's how you called our house. You had to say that number. That's how I called home. And that was our first cell phone. Um, my grandparents were from a different generation. In fact, my grandparents on my dad's side kind of skipped a generation because my grandfather was born in 1880. So when I went to his house and visited them, here's the phone they had at their house. That was a wooden uh, wall telephone. It was pretty big, and they were extremely heavy. They had a big magnet inside, and that's what happened to those phones later. People stripped the magnets out and then trashed the case. So to call on this phone, you lifted the uh, earpiece on the left, and you waited for the operator to come on, and you talked into the mouthpiece, and then you had to tell her the uh, number. But my grandparents were on an eight-party line. So that meant that if you picked up the phone at any time, there might be people talking. It was very common. I used to watch my granddad listen in to all the neighbors. <laughs> that was just very common. And then he would break in and join the conversation. And it was uh, scary to pick up, to stand on the chair and talk into that and call home, to call 205J and to, so I could talk to my parents. Um, my granddad was a farmer, and the uh, unique thing about him is he never owned a tractor, he never had a driver's license, and he never drove a truck or a car of any kind. And he did all of his farming with a team of horses or a team of mules. This, my granddad, that's a, that's a planter, a corn planter, and it's exactly what he had. And right behind his barn was all of the equipment. He had a, a harrow, a disc, a planter. He had two wooden wagons. Uh, they were all steel wheels, no rubber tires. And I helped him as a kid. Um, so I, I show you all these pictures so that you will feel sorry for me. <laughs> Consider how much the world has changed since I was a kid growing up in Iowa. Now, you know, it's, it's all pretty silly, but that's a lot of change for a lifetime. And, we, you know, Gen Z grows up. You know, I remember getting 
internet into my office. I had already been in ministry 18 years before we had internet. How would that change ministry? You know, we didn't know how it was going to change ministry. Lots of change. Uh, who would have thought that everybody would need a cell phone? The first cell phones weren't much, by the way. And uh, quite a few of, the, of you remember those. Um, it's easy for a person or a group of people to get stuck in time and say, this is the way it was, this is the way I liked it, and this is the way it should be. It's just so easy to stop adapting. If the church stops growing and adapting and adopting, it will become very ineffective in reaching its culture. Um, today we're going to uh, start by talking about cultural relevance. And here's our core value about cultural relevance. It's about embracing the culture, the good in the culture, and it's so important because humans were created in the image of God. There is so much good in humanity, and, and so much progress has been made, and there, there's so much we have learned about studying the creation. It's good. Not everything in our world is good. Not everything in culture is good. And we have to be discerning, and we have to embrace good things and be really aware of the darkness, of uh, where darkness leads and where sin begins. And we need to be uh, as wise as serpents. We want to embrace the culture without embracing the darkness. Because it's essential in building rapport with our world, with our community, building relationships, navigating situations. The world is changing very fast. Question Is cultural relevance even biblical? Well, uh, the Apostle Paul acknowledged cultural differences and embraced them without embracing any darkness. An example is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Um, the apostle writes, this is, uh, he, he's talking about his motive, he's talking about how he operates, how he connects, how he builds rapport uh, in his world, the first century world. And he says, though I am free... He has freedom in Christ, uh, and I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone. He, pu he puts himself as a servant to other people. Why? To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. Paul is very familiar with the Jewish lifestyle and Jewish culture and their practices and their traditions, and he has a whole lot of freedom to operate within that without uh, impacting his walk with Christ in a negative way. And so he's willing to experience things and to do things and honor people for the sake of the gospel if he doesn't have to uh, draw the line with sin. Next slide. 
He says, to those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law. Now, this was a big cultural divide in the first century, especially in Israel, a cultural divide between the Jewish people and the Jewish religion and the rest of the world, the Gentiles and non-Jewish people, the pagans, those people who had followed false religions or no religion. He says, those not having the law become like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So he's, he's still, he's following Christ. And yet he's willing to go to places where some people get really nervous, where a Jewish man would become really nervous and would have nothing to do with those people. So as to win those, this is his motive, to win those not having the law. Continue, next slide. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share its blessing. This is what motivated the Apostle Paul to build rapport in the first century world, as he traveled around the Mediterranean and planted churches. And he met with people that were different than him, that had a different belief system, different, belief system, different behaviors. Now, he knew about their sin, and he didn't participate in that. That wasn't what he was doing, but he wanted to be in relationship because these people were created in the image of God with dignity, and Jesus died for them. The second example comes from Acts 17, uh, another example from the Apostle Paul, and he really illustrates how he did this. Acts 17, verses 16 through 23, and it says that while Paul was waiting for them, uh, he's waiting for other missionaries, for them in Athens, this is a Greek city, a city without Christianity yet, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. It just tore his soul that these people would actually worship idols when they could worship the true and living God. And you know what? He could have been so angry at them and just wanted to correct them and show them how they're wrong. You know, all this anger could have come out that he's right and they're wrong and they're going to hell. But that's not how he approached it. Watch. Next slide. So he reasoned with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, those who happened to be there. So what does Paul do? He, he goes in to the city, likely never been there before, and he knows how to connect with the Jewish audience, and he does, and he reasons with them. But they're not yet believers either. And then it comes to verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I majored in philosophy. <laughs> began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? That's kind of where I was struggling. 
Others remark he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul is just continuing to go on. He's reasoning with people. He's communicating. He wants to talk about Jesus as it's appropriate, about who he is and what he has done, why he did it. Next slide. Then they took him. So because of this investment, because of his approach, because he built rapport with his group, they invited him. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. This is the intellectual elite of Athens. This is a big deal to be included. May we know this new teaching that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. They're just honest. And we would like to know what they mean. Next slide. All the Athenians uh, and, the, and the description of the men who lived in Athens, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived, in, lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It was pretty cool. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, he affirms them. He doesn't say, you guys are stupid. This, this doesn't make any sense. No, he affirms them for being religious. Next slide. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, you know, he invested some focus to understand and make observations about the environment in Athens. What was important to these people? What did they value? And he, he comes across their objects of worship, probably some statues. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, so this is, his, this is the door. This is, how, this is his way in to communicate. He, he, he finds an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant. And that's kind of a really negative world, uh, word for us. And he's saying, and it wasn't quite so negative the way he said it. He says, you're without knowledge. That's what it means. You don't ha you, there's something you don't know here. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Good news, folks. I am here, and I have some good news. And this is the God you don't know. And he uses it for very positive. And so some of them found this really interesting and they come to faith in Christ. Some want to continue on and some are kind of, ah, I think I've had enough. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, built rapport in Athens. So, uh, question for us, why do we need to be culturally relevant? Why do we need to be culturally relevant. Is that just like a cool term or something? And the reason we need to be culturally relevant is because we live in a world that's uh, changing at an exponential rate. I don't think I have to convince you. Um, when, when you think about just Gen Z today, those are our, uh, our kids, our middle school, our high school, the early college age kids. Um, they've never talked on a wooden wall phone before. Maybe you haven't. Some of you probably have. You just won't admit it. 
You know, safety, for example, safety and security today have a way different meaning than when I was growing up. You know, when you can say, that's not how it was when I was growing up. Um, You know, we didn't worry about identity theft. We didn't worry about car seats or background checks. Uh, Our car seats were just little canvas things with two holes for the legs. Um, And it's easy to say, well, those were the good old days, but they really weren't that good, were they? Um, The second part is, uh, why do we need to be culturally culturally relevant is that God's word and the message of salvation never changes. And this is really a big deal. Now, you, most of you uh, who have come here today believe that. God's word never changes. The gospel message that Jesus Christ died for our sins and paid for our penalty never changes. It's by faith in Jesus that we're saved from the penalty of sin, and that never changes. But the world just keeps changing faster and faster and faster, and the church is often shooting in the wrong place. They're shooting at a different culture, and they're no longer connecting with the real world. If I could just do evangelism with my my group that I came up with and never had to change anything, those were some great years of sharing the gospel. But things keep changing and they keep changing and they keep changing. And we're called to learn how to navigate through all that change because we have the most important message ever. It's a life or death matter. And so it's important um, that we have experts in all kinds of different areas that are followers of Christ. It's important, and you know, these are things that we, our kids can grow up and embrace. It's important that we have legal experts who are followers of Christ, who can navigate the legal system. Uh, it's important that um, we have well-informed medical professionals who are following Christ because all of the change that comes through medicine. It's important that we have experts in biotechnology for what's to come and for what's happening. People who are Christ followers who can sort through because we aren't all smart enough to do that. We're going to need help to do that. Trusted people to do that. And it all comes back to we need to know our audience to share the gospel. And sometimes if you're talking to your own generation in a like-minded world, it's much easier because you know a lot about what they're thinking and how they make decisions. Okay. We need to be culturally relevant and biblically sound. Second uh, core value I want to talk about is generosity. Our core value about generosity is that generosity is God's antidote 
antidote for materialism. Generosity expresses the heart of God and the heart for God. Remember, these are core values that guide us on mission. So um, why is generosity an antidote for materialism? And there may, there may be a better word than materialism. I don't know what it is yet. But there's probably nobody in this room that thinks they're a materialist or that think they struggle with materialism because they don't have much. That's kind of our focus as American in American Christianity. We don't have enough to be considered materialists. So why is generosity the antidote for materialism? Well, first, God knows our heart follows our money. He knows that our heart follows our money. So you're going to have to think with me here. Um, this is something that American believers are sometimes very slow to embrace. Jesus' values. Matthew 6, verse 21. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Treasure is what you value. And specifically here, it refers to you probably value a lot of things. I do too. But here, specifically, it's about money and stuff. And Jesus is saying, it's where your money goes, your heart follows. And uh, the kind of test for that is, you know, if we looked at our bank statements and we looked at credit card statements and we looked at our tuition bills, payments, if we um, looked at our IRAs or 401ks, they would be indicators of what really is important to us. And Jesus said, our hearts follow our money. And we have an opportunity to build the kingdom of God and put the kingdom of God first, or it, we seem to be left with building our own kingdom, even though it isn't much. If you uh, want to increase your love for God, I think Jesus would say, increase laying up your treasure in heaven. If you want to increase because they're really closely connected. Um, your heart follows your money. It goes with your bill payments, your groceries, um, your car payment, your rent, your house payment, school loans, whatever. Your heart goes there. And for the things you don't have yet. And uh, secondly here, God wants our hearts to follow him as the number one priority. Back to Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasure, treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You know, you probably could teach this passage yourself. Because accumulating stuff here is temporary. It doesn't last. It wear, wears out. And we can never take it with us. And I bet everyone would agree 100% with that. And then Jesus says, but 
Store up, don't do this, but do this. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Invest in heaven. Invest in the kingdom of God where moths and vermins do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal because there's something permanent about investing in God's kingdom, whatever it may be. Something eternal, something that lasts forever, that never happens when we invest in just this life. For where, treasure, for where your treasure is, Jesus says, and this is Jesus, there your heart will be also. Jesus said your money follows your heart. Jesus knows this is something we need to know. What we do with our money is a heart issue. Your heart follows your money. Giving back to God is one of the most basic aspects of discipleship. It is one of the essential aspects of discipleship. Third, God desires for us to acknowledge his ownership of everything and to be willing to place everything into his hands. So, why is this important? It's because God desires for us to acknowledge his ownership of everything. Psalm 24, verse 1. And it's easy to read this out loud. I think it's really hard for American Christians to believe it because we live in America and a big value of our culture is rugged individualism. And that, that's from the 19th century. It was all about working hard and creating resources and you deserved to enjoy the life that goes with it. The earth is the Lord's, the psalmist says, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This is sort of foundational theology. This is David. And... The idea is that we are God's servants then because he is the owner of everything. Uh, we are stewards, we are managers of all the resources God has given us. And there's a great passage in the Old Testament that um, we have from King David. And uh, King David is praying publicly to God before the people of Israel in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 29. And, and, and here's, uh, he begins with a prayer. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. And he just acknowledges how great God is and how awesome he is and referring to the creation and everything in it belongs to God. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. And of course, David is a king, and he has great honor, and he also has great wealth. And David is saying, all of it's from you. You are the ruler of all things. Next slide. 
In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. You don't have much trouble with theology in this prayer about how great God is and who he is and what he's done. And then David says, but who am I? David is very humble. And who are my people, God's people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? What's the occasion here? It actually is a building program. It actually is the gathering of resources to build a great building for God. It happens to be the temple. And David is saying, who are we that we are able to bring resources back to you, God? Next slide. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. You know, David's just acknowledging, God, you provide everything. You've blessed us. You've given us so much, and we're able to give back. And it's because of what you've done. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight. We don't, we don't amount to much, as we're all of our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Next slide. Lord our God. All this abundance we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. And one of the things about giving is it's, it's one of the ways that God finds out what our heart's about. It's one of the ways that he tests our hearts. And David understood that. Next slide. All these things I have given willingly with honest intent, pure heart. And now I've seen with joy how willing your people are who have given to you. And, and, and David acknowledges everything is from God. And he gives back to God. And, and he does this with great joy. And the people rejoice. And, and they have great joy because they were able to give something back to their God. David just wells up with gratitude. This was their Grow Forward campaign. And it was about their hearts. It was about their hearts. Generosity also, number which would be D, was the heart of the early church. And we see this in Acts 2, 44 and 45. The very first church, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And so this is just the result of conversion. The very first church, their hearts have been changed, and they just come out of this. There's no commands that they're, oh, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. They are just generous, and they want to help other people. Uh, Acts 4, two chapters later, next slide. All the believers were one in heart and mind. There was a sense of unity. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They recognized that everything they had came from God. But they shared everything they had with great power, and the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so there was this uh, generosity, and they shared what they had. No commands to do this. They said, you got to sell everything. No, that, that, never, that wasn't instructed. Next slide. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. And, and this was, this was uh, 
God's welfare plan in the early church. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, which was a gift to the church, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And I'm showing you all this just because I want you to see how generosity was displayed. Jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Corinth about the Macedonian churches. Philippi would have been one of those, the Philippians. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. They overflowing, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Extreme poverty, generous hearts. It wasn't about the dollars, it was about the hearts. Next slide. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. There's a key principle about your heart. First of all, give yourself to the Lord. Most important, surrender. It's about realigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. Generosity always has always been on God's heart. And I have several uh, Old Testament passages. Um, the first one is Deuteronomy chapter 14. So we go back to the Old Testament. This is written... Um, about the 14th century before Christ, Moses says at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes. So they, they had a tithe that they gave every year. This was a tithe that was to take place on the third year, which was different than the other tithes. Bring all the tithes that year's produce and store in your town so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners who are attached to Israel and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. And so there was to be God cared about those in need who didn't have the resources that some of his people had. Then I'm going to look at the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs 14, verse 21 it is a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. Now, this concept of being kind to the needy here is not just, you know, speak kind words. To be kind to the needy means meet the need that they have. Do they have physical needs? Reach out to them and meet the needs. Uh, Proverbs 14, verse 31 Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Again, that's about being generous. It's about meeting needs of those who have needs. Proverbs 19, verse 17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will become a borrower from you, and he will reward them for what they have done. 
Proverbs 21, verse 13, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Now, shutting their ears meant more than just not listening. You know, we think, well, I can, I can listen. No, what, what, uh, to be able to hear is to also be able to meet the need. Hear, O Israel. It means to hear and obey. Um, Proverbs 28, 27, those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes, close their eyes to them receive many curses. This is about generosity. Proverbs 29, verse 7, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Justice for the poor. Life is not always fair. And there are people who suffer because they don't have basic needs. Um, I think of a couple of things in our world, and we, we have the opportunity to, to help out with, and we do. We support fierce freedom. But being involved in justice for the poor includes helping in ministries that deal in, in human trafficking or sex trafficking. That's a justice issue. Um, providing clean water for people in Africa where they don't have clean water available or the resources to get clean water. That's a justice issue. And it's about generosity. It's about a generous heart. Proverbs 31, verse 20, she opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Even the Proverbs 31 woman was generous with her resources because that's what godly women do. They're generous with their resources. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Jesus said, when you give to the needy, Jesus assumed his followers would give to the needy, be generous. He says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So he gives instructions. He assumes we give to the needy and he gives instructions. And the point is, you don't do it so everybody knows you are a big contributor and you've done all of this good no, you, it's, it's humbly, maybe be anonymous, just to help somebody in need. He just assumes we're going to do that if we're Christ followers. And God will reward you for your generosity. Sometimes Christians say, well, I don't need rewards. Maybe you don't. The whole reward thing is God's deal. It's his idea, and it's how he does things. And there's a whole lot about eternity that we have to learn about, that's yet to come. So um, I just want to remind us that giving is a heart issue. Generosity is essential to our discipleship. Our money follows our heart. And generosity is a heart response. And I think the place to start is to do what the Macedonians did. They first gave themselves to the Lord. And they looked for the Lord to give them direction on how to live, how to give, how to be generous. 
It's kind of like a Romans 12.1. We present our bodies. We offer ourselves to God totally. We, we can offer, we can recognize and restate back to God that he's the one who owns everything and we're the, we're the money managers. And it's up to God how he wants to give us direction through his word. Um, first, they gave themselves to the Lord. And I just like to close in prayer. And, and um, this isn't about dollars. This is about generosity. It's about your heart. Whatever God wants your heart. And um, that's going to impact every aspect of your life, not just your money. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious God, I just want to uh, thank you for reminders of being culturally relevant for the sake of the gospel. And Lord, may we value uh, learning to navigate our culture and learning how to share the good news and caring about people who are maybe way different than us, who have different backgrounds, different life experiences, and maybe they've been really far from God. And there are times we may not even be comfortable. But God, give us skill, give us ability. May we be empowered by your Holy Spirit. May, may we be real people who are much more than trying to look good on the outside. Father, we see in the scriptures that you value generosity for your people. Lord, grow our hearts in generosity. Uh, you know each of us. You know what our needs are. Father, we who are Christ followers just come before you and we, we lay down our lives before you, before Jesus Christ, who is Lord. We acknowledge his lordship and his right to rule in our lives. We give ourselves totally to Jesus we surrender. And God, we um, just think back of the reminders that everything comes from you. You are the owner of all things. We have nothing that you haven't given us or supplied for us or enabled us to do or to accomplish. And we just give you praise and we say thank you for your goodness to us and thank you for how you've provided for us. And Lord, we're just, we, we trust you with our future. We trust you with everything that we have. We trust you with our money. We trust you with all of our stuff. We trust you with our plans. And we just um, lay them into your hands. May you have the freedom to work in our lives and to direct our paths one day at a time. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.